All right, good evening. I appreciate being here again. Um, and for those uh, listening by live stream in Cambodia, which I suspect you probably are, Arun Sasadai. Uh, and that is about the extent of my Khmer language tonight. I do want to thank uh, the Landigans for, for having me there. They were uh, really just incredible, uh, gracious hosts. Um, as we went through the country, uh, basically the purpose of the trip was to uh, obviously assist in any way we could. One of the highlights of the trip was uh, we had a pastor's conference there. Um, they brought in uh, about 25 pastors from around, particularly around the uh, western part of Cambodia. And uh, it, it really struck me how, how minimal the training is that so many of these pastors have. And it was a blessing really to, to share their word. It was exhausting. Um, I spent about 10 hours every day teaching and then uh, preaching on Saturday and Sunday. So after, after, after doing that for a, a straight week, it could be fairly exhausting. But uh, I will get into a little bit more of that as we, we go through the message tonight. But tonight, I want to go to our passage here, uh, where we have the confession of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Jesus tells Peter that God the Father has had to reveal this to him, that he didn't just think of this on his own. This came from God the Father. And it is the rock upon which the church is built. I know there's a denominational system that teaches that Peter is the rock upon whom the church is built. That is false doctrine. I'm glad tonight that Beacon Baptist is not built on Peter. Beacon Baptist is built on the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And I know that every year there's sermons throughout the country about what's wrong with the church. Oh, it's, you know... Uh, this, this and that, you know, the music's going down, this and going down, and there's lots and lots of sermons about what's wrong with the church, but I, I guess I'd like to start with saying what's right with the church. Jesus Christ is still the rock upon whom the church is built. And there is really much glory and much doctrine in this very, very brief scriptural passage that we're going to look at tonight. But we're really going to focus on the last verse that we read there in verse 18. Not only just the last verse, really the last phrase of the last verse. Where he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Against what? Against the church. This is Jesus telling Peter that he is the Christ, he is the rock... And the church is going to do something in the gates of hell that we, they will not prevail against the church. I have three main points. If anyone's taking notes tonight, there are three main points in the message tonight. The first two points we're going to look at uh, quickly here. And then I'm going to share some thoughts and some ideas from the trip in Cambodia on how we can move forward. But point number one, hell here in this text is on the defense. Jesus is telling Peter, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Now, what exactly does that mean? If 
I actually took some time to look up in commentary, and I, as many of you know, I'm not a big fan of commentary, but it's awful on this passage. You know, it, it, almost all of the commentary seems to point out that the church is on the defense and we can hold, we could, we could just hold if we just wait long enough, and that is absolutely just about the opposite of what this passage is teaching. The passage here, and I've asked Brother Rick to throw up on the screen here a, a picture of a, a walled city. I want us to think back into the days of, of Christ and, and then the years before that. Uh, if, if you built a little town and it, you didn't have any walls set up, the, the marauders, invaders would just run through and basically clean you out. They'd uh, take everything you had. So cities became, uh, became walled. They would build these walls. The walls of Babylon were thought to be 40 feet into the ground and 60 feet above the ground. They said you could run eight chariots abreast along the top of the wall. That's a massive wall. And it's interesting, walls do something. They keep people out. They don't keep people in. Those walls weren't there to keep anybody in. They were there to keep people out, particularly at night. And it, it would be nice if you could have just walls, but then you couldn't go anywhere, so you had to have gates. You would put gates into the walls. There would be different types of gates, but at night, the gates would typically be closed, and if you came from the outside, there, you know, we didn't, didn't have uh, electric lights in those days, so you could you'd knock all day. You're not coming into the city. Those gates are closed. And if you were an invading force at that point in time, you... You would, if you're trying to get into the city, well, where would you try to penetrate? You wouldn't try to penetrate the wall. You would try to penetrate the gates. That would be the weakest point of, of the area trying to get in. And if the gates were prevailing, it would keep you from being able to get in to the city. If the invading force prevailed and the gates were crashed, they could then come into the city. But here, the Bible tells us that hell has gates, and gates are defensive. The gates of hell are there to, to what? Keep people in? No, they're there to keep people out. And the Bible tells us something about the church, that the gates of hell would, what? Not prevail. That means they can be breached. And if they can be breached, who is doing the breaching? It is the church that is doing the breaching. It is as if we're literally reaching into hell to snatch out sinners, to give them the gospel, and those gates trying to keep the church out are not able to prevail. The Greek word there, katashuo, is very accurately translated, and it means to overcome by strength and to prevail, but the gates of hell will not prevail. That means hell can be penetrated by an outside force. I think of Cambodia. For the last several thousand years, that would have been considered a completely closed country to the gospel. Uh, for those of you in, you know, with a little bit of gray hair, the Khmer Rouge happened during our lifetime. 
when they would run through and they killed over a million and a half Cambodians. We, we actually toured uh, the killing fields there and the S-21 prisons and kind of took me back to the time we were at Auschwitz. And it's amazing to, to see the inhumanity of man towards man. They were um, so poor, even the Khmer Rouge was so poor, that they didn't even waste bullets on people. They would club them and beat them to death, basically. You would see many of the uh, instruments of their, uh, their weapons. You would see where uh, bodies were just tossed into the fields and left there. And yet, just a few years later, here you have a missionary, here you have a family, here you have others going in and preaching the gospel because the gates of hell do not prevail. Cambodia is considered a communist country. Now, we've been to Cuba. The gates of hell do not prevail in Cuba. The church is able to move in and preach the gospel in Cuba and in Russia and in China. We support a missionary there. The gates of hell do not prevail. It brings us to our second point in the message. If hell is on the defense... That means that the church is on the offense. Jesus tells us the gates wouldn't prevail against the church, indicating guess who is the invading force? That's us. We're not the ones holding on. We're the ones doing the invading here. We are the ones penetrating the literal gates and the walls of hell to snatch sinners out. Um, Again, most of the commentary here basically that tells us that uh, we're on the defense, but that is exactly the opposite of, of what is being taught here. Look back at, at the passage, if you will, we'll read verse 18, then we'll see where, it, where everything begins. What is our first play on offense, if you will? Verse 18, says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee, that word thee is singular, that is singular you to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the beginning of the offense of the church. This is Peter taking the keys and releasing the gospel to the two people groups that were on the planet, being Jew and Gentile. We see this first fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches at the day of Pentecost, and the gospel is presented first to the Jew. And then, somewhat reluctantly, but we see in Acts chapter 10, when Peter meets with Cornelius, a Gentile, the gospel is then released to the Gentile nation. And it is the first step of offense, if you will, of the church, invading those gates, breaching those gates of hell to snatch sinners out. Now, following the Great Commission, the church is to be on the offense. We are, number one, we are to what? Preach the gospel to every creature. Second part of the Great Commission, we are to baptize those people who have believed. And number three, we are to teach them Bible doctrine. No, nowhere in Scripture do we find Christ commanding us, just hold on till I get back. 
I'm almost there. Just wait. No. We are to be playing on the offense. You know, one of the, um, I think one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time was, was Coach Dean Smith. Dean Smith uh, coached at North Carolina from 1961 through 1997. At that time, during his reign, North Carolina appeared in 11 Final Four NCAA championship games, and they won two national championships. During most of his coaching tenure, there was no such thing as a shot clock in basketball. You could take as long as you want to, to take a shot, and so Dean Smith became uh, famous for what was known as the Four Corners offense. If they got up by a few points in the second half, you know, in college, a, they don't play by quarters, they play by halves, each, each half is 20 minutes long. And if they got up by a few points in the second half, they would go into this stalling technique they called the Four Corners offense. They'd have one person here, one person here, one person here, and they'd just keep passing the ball to each other. They'd take six, seven, eight, ten minutes off the clock and basically run out the clock. Often the other team would kind of get frustrated and ended up following somebody, and they'd go to the free throw line, make a couple of shots, and as soon as they got the ball again, it'd start all over. They would wind up in a stalling technique and just run out the clock. And eventually, um, the ACC and finally the NCAA thought, you know, this is probably not a good idea to let people just run out the clock like this. And so they finally instituted a shot clock um, in college at that point. So that, that cannot be done. At first it was 45 seconds, now it's 30 seconds. But it was really in response to, to this four corners offense. I was kind of afraid that a lot of churches think that we're in a four corners offense as a church, and we're not. We're not here just to stall. The Great Commission tells us to what? It tells us to go. I didn't see anywhere in, in Matthew 28 when Jesus was delivering the Great Commission to go ye therefore into all the world. I didn't see anything about stalling. I didn't see anything about just hang on, I'm almost back. Didn't see any of that. It's a command to go. And if we're going to go, if we're going to go into this war, if we're going to breach these walls, what are our weapons? What do we use if we're on the offense? If we're going to storm the gates of hell? Well, the Bible tells us. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says that our weapons are not carnal. I like this, because if we were to go in our strength, trying to breach the gates of hell, uh, we're going to get defeated pretty quickly. But our weapons are not carnal. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I think of this, this area, uh, particularly like Cambodia, where it's just there, that's been under communism and Buddhism for so many years. And yet, the gospel is now taking out. You saw pictures where, where we had over 300 people in a church service. You saw these kids singing. This is, this is our war. This is where we go on the offense. Our playbook, if you will, is to go in and snatch sinners out of hell. Not with our wisdom. Not with our 
programs, but rather with the gospel. The Bible tells us the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You know, I used to be very frustrated early on as a Christian trying to win people to Christ. I always thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough, I'm clever enough to, to get around any objection you have. And, and that is not the way to present the gospel. It's not my wisdom that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. As a church, we only have three plays on offense. We preach the gospel. We baptize those who get saved. And we teach them Bible doctrine. That is our great commission. And it brings me to discussing some of the points that I've learned from this Cambodia trip and from others. First, I definitely want to thank uh, Brother Landigan and his staff there, Tecmo of Cambodia. Now, if you're watching on live stream, Brother, and I suspect you probably are, uh, I tell you, brother, we, lo we love you folks. We really do. Um, the hospitality that they showed to me was just, it was legendary. I mean, they wouldn't let me do, you know, wouldn't let me try to do anything. They would always try to, you know, take over everything. Oh, no, brother, of course, you can't pick that up, you know. So go and you go get that for him, you know. And uh, I, I just, I really wish to thank you for allowing me to, to help you in the work there. On the screen, you see a, a picture. Um, this is a picture that has really been uh, deep on my heart for, for many, many uh, months now. It is a picture of the world with a little bit of a highlight there, as you'll see. You see a little part of the world, it's about maybe 10% of the land mass. I don't know if you can read the caption or not, but if you see that little circle, there are more people that live inside of that circle than live outside of that circle. Now this is only really a part of the 1040 window. We speak of the 1040 window a lot of times, 10 degrees north latitude to 40. This is just a small part, but this circle right here has more people. There are over four billion people living within this circle. However, of all of the independent Baptist missionaries that are sent, there are only 15% that are sent within this window. And there are two countries that in this window that we would consider relatively free and relatively open, being Japan and the Philippines. If we remove those, only 8% of Baptist missionaries are within that circle. You think about those going there, there are more missionaries to the country of Brazil than entirely within that circle. And by the way, that does not mean we don't need more missionaries to Brazil, we do. But I want us to think of the burden of those people within that circle. I ask you this question, does God want those people to be saved. 
Does he want them to hear the gospel? And I say yes. I believe we need to be on offense inside of this circle. We, we, we often are cautious. We often are afraid of being there. Why, why it's, a, it's a totally different religion, and it is. Cambodia is, you know, 95% or so Buddhist. India is nearly all Hindu or Muslim. Indonesia is almost all Muslim. And yet, are those souls for whom Christ died? We say, well, they're, they're different cultures. Oh, they are. They are very different cultures. They are very tough on their languages. It is, it is, Cambodia is probably the Khmer language there. It's probably one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. There's, there's 74 letters in their alphabet. <laughs> I mean, it's, as you learn to try to speak some things, uh, one of my um, interpreters there, Brother Treat, he was, oh, no, you can't say it like that. That's, that's, that's the wrong word. I'm like, but it's, it's, no, he says, you're, you're holding this one syllable a little bit too long. It's just how long you hold a syllable changes the word entirely. But does God want those people to be saved? We see, we look at these religions and say, well, they've, they've, they have their own religion. And the world at large would say, just leave them alone. Why? They're living in peace. Just leave them alone. And, and people look at Buddhism and they'll say, oh, it's just a peaceful religion. Can't you just leave those people alone? Well, let me tell you just a little bit of Buddhism that we saw as we were there. Every morning, without fail, as we would uh, get up and begin going around to the different things, you would see Buddhist monks. They're, they're wearing these orange uh, outfits. And uh, every, they'd go down the street, every business, They'd wait, they'd open their little pouch, and they're not moving until you put something into that pouch, and then they're gonna, then they're gonna pray for you. I, I used to, every day as we would drive by, go, oh, it's a shakedown in progress, you know. Every morning, they're just business to business, shaking down the, uh, you know, the, the businesses and, and getting them to put a little something into their sack to supposedly pray for them. And, the people are living in blindness from hundreds and hundreds of years of this idolatry. Um, I don't know if you caught some of the pictures beforehand on the screen. Uh, on the screen, they have these little shrines. If, you, if you've had a relative that has died, they put this little shrine up outside their home, and every morning they'll put a little bit of food on it. They hardly have enough food to eat themselves, but they'll put a little bit of food on it just in case the relative spirit wants to come in and, and eat something there. It's blindness, they live without hope. The average factory worker in Cambodia earns somewhere between 100 and $150 per month. That is their living standard. And they are largely neglected by missionary outreach due to their status oftentimes, almost every country listed in, in this area here within the circle, if we looked at it on a map, we will say, well, that's closed to the gospel. Oh, well, that country is closed to the gospel. 
based on those dominant Eastern religions, based on communism. But, you know, I, I hear the term closed to the gospel, and I go back in my mind to the time of Rome and the Apostle Paul. I say, hmm, I, I wonder if Rome was, quote, closed to the gospel. I suspect if we added in modern missions today, we say, oh no, the Roman Empire is closed to the gospel. But I'm thankful that our brothers that ran before us didn't look at these areas as closed to the gospel. They looked at them as a field to open the gospel too. And I will admit it is, it is very difficult. Some of these areas are very difficult. I don't, I think it's very uh, hard to ask a man to take his family in, into a country like this. Uh, some of them can be dangerous, but a lot of people have asked me, well, how, how dangerous was Cambodia? And I, I kind of laughed a little bit. I said, if you saw any of the pictures, uh, the average Cambodian man is about five foot two, five foot three. And I said, at six foot three, I'm probably not the first target that they're looking for at this point. But honestly, the most dangerous thing I found in Cambodia was the traffic. It was maddening. Uh, there's no such thing as two-way traffic. It's like eight-way traffic as you go down the streets. And yes, there, there, can be some, uh, there can be some dangers within inside this window. But you know, the Bible talks about men who have hazarded their lives for the gospel. Now, when I went, um, went there, I went with a very heavy bias on, on one thing. Because I'm, as we're looking at this area and as we seek to get people within there. I'm like, is there any way to speed things up? Is there something that can be done to push the gospel forward at a faster pace? And I went with a very, very heavy bias towards the teaching of English as a means of promoting the gospel. Many years ago, I had a client that was uh, doing a medical device on an iPhone. And they asked me to do a market study of Bangladesh, another country within the, the window here. And, you know, my first blush when I talked to him about it, I said, how can you do a medical device in Bangladesh, you know, on mobile phones? What, you know, it would be what, you know, maybe 5% of the people might have a phone there. And so I, as I did the study, I found something. There are 50 million people that live in Bangladesh and there are 60 million cell phones in Bangladesh. And I thought, well, that's, that's weird. So I, I began to look at other countries, and it's almost uniform across the country. You might make $100 a month, but you have a cell phone. And then I looked, what else do these countries have in common? And it is the way forward financially in almost any country within this window is to learn English. Why, if you can learn English, you can be a person on the customer call center. I'm sure you've called you know, somebody and you got sent to the call center in India or one of these places and it's, it's kind of frustrating, but that's where a lot of these people end up working in and it is a means of financial support if you can speak English. 
And I, I found that almost every person living within this window has both a cell phone and wants to learn English. So I thought, what a way to promote the gospel. If we can develop some type of you know, mobile application to learn English that presents the gospel with it and, and to, to use it as a tool in uh, evangelizing the window. And as I spoke with many of these pastors during the conference, uh, without fail, all of them were like, if I could just teach English inside of the church, if I could have a day, a night class and, and have an English course, people would flock to it. I thought, what an opportunity for us to be able to teach English uh, within the window. If we could offer classes, beginning English, intermediate English, business English, technology English, this would be a way for the local pastors there to have a, a great outreach with, uh, for their people. Um, one of the things I noted, they do teach English in the schools in Cambodia, and as I was picking up on it, I, I said it would be a lot better if they actually didn't teach it at all. They, the teaching that's done there is, is, is awful. It's, it's probably only setting them backwards. <laughs> um, and they really need a, a lot better quality of English being taught. But um, if we could offer these classes, it would uh, bring us to a second obstacle, if you will, that we could, I think, turn into an opportunity, and that is the national pastor opportunity. Uh, as I mentioned, we had, I think we had about 25 uh, local pastors out here, and for us to send a missionary into any of these countries here, uh, it, you're usually looking at about somewhere between eight to $9,000 a month of support to, to get a missionary there. Deputation is typically going to take somewhere between two and three years to raise that kind of support. Every country is going to be a little bit different, but I can tell you, for, as using Cambodia as an example, I could fully support, 100% support, a national pastor there, including supporting his church, would mean his, his utilities and everything for his church. I could fully support that person for $300 a month. Well, what an amazing opportunity. I can basically support 25 national pastors for the cost of one missionary. What advantage does that bring? Well, I don't have to teach them the language. They already know the language. The average person going through language school in, for example, in Cambodia, it's about a three-year course before you're really efficient enough to preach in the Khmer language. What else do they have? They already know the culture. You know, you get a, a Western missionary to come in, and a lot of times they want to bring nothing but Western culture with them, and that's, that's not easily accepted a lot of times by many of the local people. You, they, they'll want to trust Christ, but they can be offended many times by our push towards Western culture. These local pastors are already very culture knowledgeable. 
Um, they don't have to do two to three years of deputation. I thought about it one time. I thought, well, how many missionaries do we have at any given point in time on deputation? I said, well, let's just say we had a thousand missionaries and that each missionary took two years to raise their support. I said, you know, that's 2,000 years of no ministry on the field, just going around on deputation. Now, I do believe uh, one other advantage that I see there is sometimes when a Western missionary comes, I could, I could tell just by my presence there, people would flock to us because, well, look at this skin. I must gonna, I'm going to get something free from this white person who's come from America. But if they see a Cambodian local pastor, they're probably not going to think the same way. We don't want people coming just because they think they're going to get something free. Now, I'm, I'm all for, you know, giving the kids candy and, you know, doing all that sorts of thing. But we can't continue to teach them that you come to church just to get free things. You're coming to church to serve the Lord. And I think that local national pastor has, has an advantage that that is not presupposed at that point in time. Um, they know the geography of the place. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that Brother Landigan did virtually all of the driving, or one, one of our interpreters there did all of the driving while I was there. I thought, I, it would take me about five minutes to get lost in this place, but they, they, they've got the geography down, and they somehow know how to drive in the traffic that's out there. I, just, I wouldn't recommend it. It's, it's bad. Um, one other thing, a lot of times we see national pastors, uh, and it's been kind of the, the way that we've tried to train national pastors is we'll bring them to the United States to put them in Bible college and train them here and then, and then send them back to the field. And there's nothing wrong with that, but one of the things I think we find is when the national pastor comes here and has four years of training here, America sounds like a pretty good place to stay. And, and continue to minister here. If we can train the national pastors in country, they're, they're already there. They're not coming from America to go back. Now, there are some obstacles there. Uh, we, have to, we obviously have to be sure that they are not in it for the money. Um, somebody who would get $300 of support from, from somebody here would, would be ahead of the average person there. So we want to make sure that they don't look at this as an opportunity of financial gain. But uh, we've thought about that. And one of the things I believe that we can do is if we have what we would call an overseer in the country, I think of, for example, in Cambodia, we have Brother Landigan. In, in China, we have Brother Zhang. And around the world, we have different missionaries that can vet these national pastors, make sure that they're worthy of being supported, that make sure they have accountability, you know, towards these men, and uh, be able to train them individually, and then also via online classes. One of the things that I'm uh, looking forward to trying to initiate is training in two things. Number one, training for, for national men there. The, I would tell you that the average 
national pastor in Cambodia probably has Bible knowledge maybe equivalent to one of our ninth or 10th graders. They just have woefully inadequate training. Um, the, the three days of courses that we presented there, I, I promise you, was more training than any of these men have ever had in their lives. And, and they were very thankful for it. Uh, you know, I was ready for some of, the, some of the usual questions you would think you would get at the pastor's conference. I was even ready for the, you know, questions on, you know, speaking in tongues and things like that. But the very first question I got was on baptism, immersion versus sprinkling. And I turned around and thought, I saw the sign that said Baptist conference. And I thought, well, that's a strange question for a Baptist conference. It was the first question because they're just, they're not very well trained. One of the obstacles that we see there, uh, the Koreans ha are, have sent in thousands of, of missionaries into the field. The Koreans typically are either, in, are either heavily charismatic or they're very heavily into the prosperity uh, gospel there. And people often will leave a Baptist church to go to the Korean church because, hey, they feed them every, every time they go there, they'll feed them. And, or they'll give them some type of financial gift. And, I, I, and I, in speaking with the pastors, you know, some of them were asking, is that something that we should be doing? I said, I said, you know, on an occasion, we want to give gifts, we want to do things that we can, but I said, that cannot be the motivation for bringing people to your church. We talked about getting them to a self-supporting uh, level. I said, you know, if, if we had a, a national pastor, we began to support somebody like this, let's say we did that for $300 a month. I said, this is not a forever support. I said, you will not be a church unless you become self-supporting. We, we have to taper that number off so that you become, and you should be doing everything you can to become self-supportive. Um, so with some of these thoughts, I'd like to present really the, the following if I can. Number one, I think first it should be stated that we are not the, the, the only ones thinking about this. Uh, there are plenty of others. I know Brother Folger has come through here, has given uh, uh, a, a presentation on this. We're not the only ones thinking about English being a tool. We're not the only ones thinking about how to support national pastors. So there are some things we can do to reach out and collaborate with, with people of like faith, with churches of like faith who share this vision. But I will say this, um, I think that Beacon, I think we are probably the most pro-missionary church, not only that I've been a part of, but that I've known anything about. This is a mission-loving church. And I would tell you, I know that it is the heart of our pastor for missions. You, you don't see churches that support missions at the levels that we do. Uh, if you listen, if you talk to some of our missionaries, I talk to, ask them about some of the smaller churches that will support them. Uh, Brother Landigan, for example, he has a church that supports them at $5 a month. And if you think about it, I'm like, well, that means if you actually drive there, one time you're losing money just to bring a, a message there. And 
You know, I, I love the fact that Beacon handles missions the way we do. I know it's in, not just in the heart of our pastor, I know it's in the heart of our people to support missions, to really fulfill the Great Commission. And I think Beacon can and really should have a leading role, if you will, in enhancing mission work throughout this 1040 window. Um, we can use certainly the help of like-minded churches, Bible schools. There, for example, if we're going to do uh, some type of English classes, we don't need to make up our own curriculum. I'm sure a lot of the schools have curriculum that we could use. But we don't need, we don't need credit. We don't need this to be, you know, Beacon conquers the world. We don't need credit for this. We just need to move it forward, to go to this area. Uh, I would like to propose that we eventually establish a budgetary item, and we, I think she call it Beacon 1040 Missions, that we could go to establishing online English classes to help the pastors there. Um, we might look out and say, hey, who can tutor or teach English for an hour a week? By the way, it would be six o'clock in the morning here, because if they're going to have the class at six in the evening there, it'll be six in the morning here. So we need some early risers who can teach English. We need to look to support, I think, national missionaries, basically identifying some overseers in some of these countries. Uh, there's a lot of work to do, but that is a window that I think God really wants us to go after. And it brings me, if you will, to the third and final point of the message tonight. Point number one was that hell is on the defense. Point number two, the church is on the offense. And number three, which side are you on? And again, there's an offense and a defense. Another side, are you committed, if you will, to playing <coughs> offense tonight. Now maybe you're here, maybe you're here, you don't even know the Lord, you don't know the Lord Jesus is saved. You're not even in the game, if you will. You're not on offense or defense. That could change for you tonight. Now this has been a message really just to the church. But I do want to, I do want to give that person who's here who says, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm saved. I don't think I'm in the game. Well, that can change because Christ not only died for the sins of the 1040 window, he died for the sins of every person in this room. And if you will simply believe that Christ died for your sins, you can be saved even tonight. He will save you if you simply believe the gospel. But most of us tonight, I think here, are already saved. But I wonder if you would say, well, Brother Chris, I have... I think I've been on the sideline. I don't know, I'm not really sure I've, I've been in the game. I'm not really sure I've been following the Great Commission to go, preach, baptize, teach. But, but I want to be a part. Maybe you'd say, well, I, I'm on the offense, but I don't play a very significant role. I'd like, to, I'd like to play more offense. And let me speak briefly to those here that particularly in the senior saints, 
I think a, a lot of times, once we get once we get that gray hair going, we, we get to the point where, oh, I don't think, you know, God really can't use me in a ministry any longer. Well, that's not true. Uh, as we move forward with it, there, there will be opportunities for a lot of our senior saints to teach Bible, to teach English, to teach other things that can be useful for those within the 1040 window. I hope tonight that you will consider being a greater part of the offense. I think of Caleb back there in the Old Testament. He was an old man. He was a really old man. And what did he ask the Lord? He said, give me this mountain. He wanted to keep moving forward at, an, at, at a very advanced thing. I want to go forward for serving God. I hope that's the heartbeat of everyone here tonight. Let's bow in prayer if we will. Our Father, tonight we love you certainly not the way we should and really only because you first loved us. I thank you, Father, that you uh, enabled us, you, you gave us the opportunity to uh, go and meet with the Landigans there in Cambodia to really get a, a, to open our eyes even larger, Father, to the, to the opportunity that exists, Father, for missions around the world. Lord, I, I know there are many in this room who, whose heart is fully devoted to supporting missions around the world, Lord. I pray that you give us wisdom as we move forward, Father, in, in looking at evangelizing those who are often so unreached. I thank you, Father, that you have opened a door for the gospel in Cambodia. That is a window that may not be open much longer. But I thank you that it is open now, Father. I pray that you continue to open doors. I know, Father, that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Father. And I pray now, Lord, that you would just speak to every heart here, Father. What can I do? What can I do, Father, to fulfill the Great Commission now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.